What is it like to be the richest man in Rome? One day, a single Roman took a tenth of his net worth and threw a gigantic festival for the entire city. He did it in honor of the god Hercules. Every citizen got to eat for free. In 71 BC, the year that this happened, there were as many as 300,000 Roman citizens. And the entire population of the city of Rome itself was maybe 800,000 people. It's quite possibly the largest city in the world at this time. Think of the scale of that kind of operation for a moment. Tables lining every public square and every side street. Table servers to distribute the food. And when you have a feast like this in Rome, you don't just slaughter the animals off-site in a butcher shop. You ritually sacrifice them in the city's temples. Think of all the priests, the ritual attendants, their festival garb, all the smoke filling the city. Then you can't have a feast without entertainment, right? So musicians, dancers, maybe some wild beasts for the arena. Doesn't the scale of something like that sound like it would challenge the logistics team of any army? And the guest list at this feast was much larger than any ancient army ever was. And doesn't this sound expensive? Well, the host of this party was only getting started because with the remainder of that one-tenth of his net worth, he gave a massive gift to the people of Rome. He gave every Roman citizen three entire months worth of living expenses. What would it be like to be the man whose name was on everybody's lips that day and for those three months afterwards? Maybe it's more interesting, though, to ask, what does it take to become that man, to build a great, legendary fortune, to become a real estate mogul, a mining tycoon, a ship owner, a financier of political campaigns and foreign investment cartels? Maybe, though, the most interesting thing to ask is, how should you spend a fortune like that? The subject of this biography would look at the way that most wealthy people spend their fortunes these days. Yachts, planes, private estates, effective altruism. And he would have thought, how boring. Can you imagine Jeff Bezos funding and emceeing a party that fed every person in New York City for a day? Can you imagine Elon Musk leading a giant tank column he personally financed into Iran, marching at the head of 100,000 of his own soldiers? The man that we're talking about here is Marcus Licinius Crassus. During the days when Julius Caesar was beginning his career, it was Crassus who was known as the richest man in Rome. If you've heard of Crassus, chances are that's how Crassus's wealth is the thing that people talk about the most. So much so that he's often a kind of a stock character in a morality tale on the corrupting power of greed. He shows up as a classic example of the vice of avarice in Dante's Divine Comedy, the story of a descent into hell. Crassus was world-class at making money, and that is inevitably going to win you some detractors. But Crassus was also world-class at spending money, and he spent it with a singular ambition, to do great things. And it was that quality, more than the first, that made him as famous as he became. Another place you might hear about Crassus is when people talk about Rome's most famous slave revolt, the War with Spartacus. If you've seen the 1960 film Spartacus with Kirk Douglas, directed by Stanley Kubrick, 
You might remember Crassus as the villain in that story. He's played by Laurence Olivier. Great casting. Spartacus was a real person. And we're going to tell the story in this episode. So from making a fortune to commanding armies, Crassus was a man of many talents. In fact, before Crassus marched his army into Iran in 54 BC in his famous ill-fated Persian expedition, if you were a Roman senator and someone asked you what man is most likely to rule Rome for himself as dictator, you wouldn't have said Julius Caesar, the man who actually ended up doing that less than 10 years later. You would have said it was Crassus that was most likely to do that. He was wildly popular with the common people. And for the political classes, he was the most feared man in Rome. So before Caesar, there was Crassus. And Crassus was actually instrumental in Julius Caesar's rise. You could almost consider Julius Caesar as a kind of protege of Crassus. Crassus was about 14 years older. Well, whether you end up liking him or not, whether in the end you think he deserves to be rehabilitated or condemned to the inferno, if you look at what he achieved in his lifetime, the fortune that he personally built, the armies he led, the power he amassed, and the history he changed, I think you're going to be forced to admit that Marcus Crassus was not just one of the greatest business minds, but one of the greatest political minds that ever lived. So what can we learn from Crassus about how to build our own fortune, or what to do with it, or what mistakes to avoid on the way to our goals? Well, let's get to it. I'm Alex Petkus, and you are listening to The Cost of Glory, where it is our mission to retell the lives of the great Greek and Roman heroes following the lead of the ancient Greek philosopher, biographer, Plutarch. This is part one of three of the life of Crassus. Crassus is the first in a longer series of biographies that I'm doing on The Cost of Glory called Visions of Caesar. The story of Julius Caesar is also the story of the fall of the Roman Republic, and its transition from a collective government, a republic, into a monarchy, the Roman Empire, ruled by an emperor. We're telling the story, though, piece by piece, through the eyes and through the very different perspectives of several famous men who participated in these events, men who helped, opposed, followed, or murdered Julius Caesar, and they were all singularly talented and impressive men, and they were each capable of leading the Republic on their own, and each of them did in his own way. But whether it was something special about the Roman Constitution that produced people like this, or maybe it was just history's luck, but they all lived and clashed against each other in the same era. To understand what motivated Crassus, you have to go back to his youth. Picture this scene. It's a cool, sunny day in Rome in 93 BC. The streets are rammed with revelers. The whole city has stopped everything it was doing for this. It's a triumph. It's the Romans' famous military parade plus religious celebration plus feast. A celebration of a great victory of the people of Rome over their enemies. And it's considered by many people 
to be the most desirable thing a man could possibly get in life. And Marcus Crassus, our man, is riding in the triumphal chariot in the epicenter of all the city's attention right now. It's kind of like the main float in a modern-day parade. Crassus is about 21 years old. But it's not him leading the chariot. It's his father. His father was governor of Spain for several years, and he defeated some rebellious tribes in the Romans' relatively new province there. And so the Senate has awarded him with this triumph, And a Roman general who wins a triumph gets to have his sons ride in the chariot with him too. So Crassus' older brother and his younger brother are there in the chariot as well. Think about what a day that must have been for Crassus. And I think that this day had to have been seared in his memory for all of his life. Within just a few years, Crassus' father and his two brothers would all be dead. The older brother died in a war, but his younger brother and his father died because their enemies at Rome wanted them dead. Crassus lived in turbulent times for Rome ever since his youth. He was born around 115 BC, and the century before Crassus' birth Rome had risen from being a regional great power, mostly confined to Italy and Sicily, to being the unquestioned masters of the entire Mediterranean world. And the wealth that's now pouring into Rome from all over their world is staggering. But the people enjoying most of it are the leaders of society, the elite, composed mainly of the senatorial order, which is the highest, wealthiest rank in society, And secondarily, the business classes of Rome, the equestrians, who are the number two ranked order in Rome. And this is one of the reasons that late in the second century BC, really around the time Crassus is born, Rome's biggest problems shifted from being external enemies to internal tensions. For one thing, the wealth inequality is stunning. And in a normal empire where you have, say, an emperor and a hereditary aristocracy, a permanent imperial bureaucracy, that might not be such a big problem. But Rome is not a normal empire. It is a single city ruling over a vast territory. And that single city is governed as a republic. It is a res publica, which from the Latin you might translate as a commonwealth, It's a place where citizens of the Republic compete to be elected by their fellow citizens for one-year turns at high office, and where, according to the rules of its complicated constitution, even the poorest citizen in Rome still has important political rights, including voting on laws and policies and, of course, on candidates. And Roman politicians, the senators and the equestrians, they know If you can mobilize the masses of poorer citizens, channel their discontent, maybe at wealth inequality, or channel their enthusiasm into candidates, laws, and policies, you have a chance at seizing the upper hand in the Roman political game. And politicians who try to do that court the masses. The Romans call populares, quarters of the people, Demagogues, you might say, pejoratively. 
And you could speak of the populares as a party or a faction of people willing to channel the sovereignty of the masses even so far as using popular will to break the established rules of Roman politics through extraordinary measures, unconstitutional policies, radical politicians, and we'll see the details as the story progresses. Well, Crassus's family, the Licinius Crassus family, was decidedly not of the populist party. In a full Roman name, there's typically three names. The first one is your first name, like Marcus. And the second one is your clan name, called the nomen in Latin. And this is your family name. And for Crassus, it's Licinius. The second name is the largest category in your full name. And Licinius, or the gens Licinia in Latin, it's a relatively large and old clan. And then the last name of the three is your cognomen. And these can be nicknames given to individuals, but they often become hereditary. They get passed on, and they end up becoming, these last names become smaller family branches within clans. And so Crassus is one of the branches within the Licinius clan. So Marcus Licinius Crassus is the full family name. Now then, Crassus's father was an important politician. He once held the highest elected office in Rome. He was a consul. There are two consuls elected every year to be the supreme legal and military executive authorities. But Crassus's father, a former consul, was a leader of the conservative party of the Optimates, who stood more for tradition and restraint and respect for the established norms and the constitution and authority. And this fact that he was part of the conservative party was what did him in. The fate of Marcus Crassus and his father Publius Crassus, like the fate of really all Romans of this period, was shaped by a crisis in the state of Rome. So around 88 BC, Crassus was in his late 20s. This is a few years then after his father's great triumph in Rome. Well, there was a Roman politician of the Optimate faction, the conservatives. His name was Sulla. And the Senate gave Sulla charge of a great war against a rebel king in Asia, Mithridates of Pontus. And Sulla's main political rival, however, was the other great man of the day, Gaius Marius. And Marius wanted the command for himself. He thought he deserved it. And Marius was also the leader of the populist faction at Rome, the opponents of Sulla. And so Marius decides to use some very underhanded populist tactics to strip Sulla of the command and to award it to himself. Basically, Marius has a tribune of the people, this important office in the Roman constitution. He has a tribune call an extraordinary plebiscite, a vote of the people of Rome, to assign Marius the command instead of Sulla. The Tribune of the People is a one-year office of Rome, like most of them, and it's really central to the whole story of the fall of the Republic, this office. And we'll talk about them more, but one of the key powers that tribunes have is the ability to call a popular assembly and to take a vote on basically any measure, and if they can get a majority vote, they can turn it into a law or policy. And it's kind of like a constitutional wild card. 
But the Tribune office had never been used to do anything like this before, like Marius was doing, to strip a general who was already in command of an army of his authority. Now, rivalry in the political game is the lifeblood of the Republic. It's what brings out excellence in the Romans, and they all know it. But there have to be rules to the game. And Sulla responds to Marius breaking the rules here, even though it was technically legal. Sulla responds by breaking the rules even harder. Instead of laying down his command, he's already at the head of a 20,000-man army, and he's just a day or two march away from Rome. He instead marches with his army on Rome, and he captures the city in a lightning strike. And this is another precedent that Crassus was going to keep in mind, and one that was going to haunt the Republic for the rest of its days, its limited days. Generals using mobilized Roman armies to force their will. Well, Sulla captures the city, and he declares Marius a public enemy, and Marius escapes the city. Sulla has a few people executed, uh, but he doesn't catch Marius. And Sulla then leaves the city, and he goes marches east to fight the war that he was already planning to fight against Mithridates. But then Marius returns from exile. He raises an army and he comes back with some of his associates and they capture the city back forcefully. And there's a bloody siege and the city comes near starving. And eventually, Marius and the populists take back control of the city while Sulla is off east. And here's where it happens for Crassus. Marius and his associates go on a bloody political purge of revenge. And Crassus's father was one of the top guys on their list. He's a key optimate. He's a friend of Sulla. And so Marius and the Populares put a bounty on Crassus's father's head. Publius Crassus, senior, commits suicide rather than let himself be captured. But they find his corpse. They cut off his head and they hang it from the speaker's platform in the forum, which is called the Rostra. And then Marius's guys hunt down Crassus's younger brother, and they murder him, and they give his head the same treatment. Crassus, however, escapes. When he gets out of Rome, Crassus heads to Spain, and he and a few friends find their way to an estate on the coast that belonged to what seems to be an old friend of his father's. And Crassus hides out there, in a cave by the seashore, and this family friend who owns the property sends him supplies, but they agree never to see each other because there are men in Spain that are friends of Marius who are looking for dissidents, looking to eliminate threats to the new populares regime in Rome. And Crassus is 27 years old. And the story is that he lives there in that cave for three years in hiding. And there was even a story that Crassus's host sent him a couple of slave girls to keep him company. Plutarch reports on this. He says, Fenestella, that's a Roman writer from around this period that Plutarch is using as a source. He says, Fenestella says that he once saw one of these slaves himself, one of these slave girls, when she was now an old woman and often heard her mention this episode and rehearse its details with zest. So maybe she spiced up the story a little bit. But, uh, you know, Crassus could be charming with the ladies when he needed to be. Now, on the one hand, maybe this doesn't sound so bad, you know, getting your 
food sent to you by a family friend hiding out in Spain. And Plutarch even describes the cave. It's very nice, dry air, high ceilings. But on the other hand, in the moment, think about what it must have been like to be Crassus. You're at the height of your energy and restlessness when you're ready to start taking on the world. And instead, you're living as an exile. Your political enemies have murdered your family and they control the state. You're shut out from all honors. Your property's been confiscated too, and there are people out there looking for you. So what this makes me think is, if you're going through a period where you feel locked out of opportunities, hang on. Things can change. Think about where Crassus started and about where he ended up. And things definitely did change. In 84 BC, Sulla finishes his war in the east. Then he sails back to Italy and he brings back the hammer with him. He starts a terrible bloody civil war and he wages war against this popularist regime that slaughtered his friends and burned their houses. And in this war, the, the entire Italian countryside is ravaged and it's filled with arms and blood and the conflict lasts more than two years, and it eventually costs more than 200,000 Roman lives. And once Sulla is on the move toward Rome, though, Crassus sees this is an opportunity. He wastes no time. He sets out for Italy from his cave, and he knows which side he's going to be on in the war. Of course, he's going to be on the side of Sulla, but he doesn't want to show up empty-handed. So as he's on his way, he goes around Spain, and he recruits a large several thousand strong force of soldiers to fight under himself personally. I think this really shows you Crassus's initiative here. He sees a big opportunity to bet on the man that he thinks is going to be in charge of Rome. When the dust of war settles, he's going to be in a good position. And, you know, he bets right. Sulla, in the course of the war, wants to recruit some troops and he wants Crassus to do it. By this point, Crassus has joined up with Sulla. He's, you know, fighting officially in Sulla's uh, forces. And so the place that Sulla wants to recruit these troops from, this friendly area of Italy, to get there, Crassus is going to have to cross through very hostile territory filled with warlike enemies. And Crassus asks Sulla for a military escort to help him get through the hostile territory. And Sulla gives him a kind of annoyed laugh, and he says, Crassus, I give you as an escort your father, your brother, your friends, and your kinsmen, who were illegally and unjustly put to death, and whose murderers I am bringing to justice. Sort of like, I give you the ghosts of your relatives as your escort. And Crassus says, well, all right, fine. And then he goes and he raises the troops with no escort. So, Crassus is there from close to the beginning of the war with Sulla. But the most famous achievement of his in the Civil War was, and this is maybe maybe the war's most pivotal battle. It's a battle fought at the very gate of Rome. It's called the Battle of the Colline Gate. They're fighting against some of the most fierce and battle-hardened troops that Sulla ever had to face in his career. These are the Samnites. The Samnites personally hate Sulla, and Sulla personally hates the Samnites. They're this Italian tribe that just 
love to bash the Romans. And they're fighting the Samnites, and it's not going well for Sulla. And they fight late into the day, and Sulla's commanding the center, and Crassus is on the right wing, and Sulla actually loses by the end of the day on his side of the battle. They have to retreat. And Sulla thinks that for a while he's lost the battle entirely, that he's maybe even lost the war. But what actually happened is that Crassus was so brilliantly victorious on his right wing that he chased the enemy several miles away as darkness was settling. And he apparently left no trace behind such that it's morning by the time that Sulla realizes that Crassus has won the battle for him and maybe saved the whole war effort. So Sulla wins the civil war. It's 82 BC, and he has himself declared dictator. And dictator is an ancient office of the Republic that gives a magistrate absolute dictatorial authority for a limited period of time to do something special, necessary for the salvation of the state. So went the reasoning. And it's been defunct for centuries, but Sulla resurrects it. And so Sulla, with these powers as dictator, begins a series of constitutional reforms to stabilize the state. But Sulla doesn't just do that. He also goes on a series of reprisals. These are the famous proscriptions. And what happens next is really formative for Crassus. Sulla publishes in the forum a list of names, his enemies, men that he blamed for the Civil War, and every name on that list, every proscribed man is doomed. And Sulla's agents would hunt the man down. They'd bring his severed head back to the dictator for a cash reward. So he kind of learned from the lesson of Marius, but he 10x'd it. There were as many as a thousand people proscribed in this period, some of the richest men in Rome. And so when you're proscribed, your entire family property is also confiscated. And so, just to give you an idea of what's going on here, what Sulla would do, say your neighbor is one of the populares and, uh, you know, the losers of the Civil War. Well, his name goes on the list, and after Sulla's guys assassinate him, then, you know, they bring the head to Sulla. Sulla would auction off their property because what he's most interested in is raising cash quickly. He's got a lot of debts to pay, paying his troops off. I said auction. Maybe auction is not the right word because often these estates didn't even go to the highest bidder and it wasn't always public. I mean, often they went to people that Sulla wanted to do a favor for. So he'd give a friend or an associate a really low price on a plum piece of land or urban real estate. And so in the context of, of all these properties being confiscated, all these prescriptions going on, Crassus sees a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. You've maybe heard the old saying that's attributed to Baron Rothschild, only buy when there's blood in the streets. Well, Crassus does exactly that. Sulla also wants respectable men to buy these estates. You know, he wants to implicate more people in this dirty, unpleasant, maybe unpopular business of reprisals. And Crassus has no qualms. Often it's like 10 cents on the dollar, so it's easy to see how qualms would kind of vanish in those 
situations. You know, when you're able to get an estate like that for that cheap, Crassus's investments in this period become one of the cornerstones of his fortune. And it's easy to shake your head at Crassus at this time. There were a lot of people doing this. But even if there were other people doing this, it still gave them a bad reputation later to the proportion that they took advantage of these times. And nobody made off better in wealth in this period. Nobody made off worse in reputation afterwards for indulging in this than Crassus. And, you know, I think given what some of these people, the populares that have been defeated in the Civil War, given what some of them did to Crassus's family and his friends a few years earlier, I can just imagine Crassus standing one day in the forum looking at the proscription list. He's looking at the names. He knows their approximate net worth, and he's seeing some of his enemies on there, and he's remembering his own fathers and his brothers' heads swinging from the rostra on that day, just a few paces away. I'm not saying it's good or okay that Crassus took advantage of the situation, but I think it's at least understandable. Now, it was back in the very beginning of the Civil War, right when Crassus first came to Sulla, that Crassus met his lifetime rival, Pompey, Gnaeus Pompeius, later known as Pompey the Great. Pompey is 21 years old, to Crassus is 30 at this time. Crassus's family is more distinguished. Pompey is from the equestrian rank. His father was a new man. Uh, so Pompey's not a senatorial like Crassus. However, Pompey has also realized something that Crassus did, and so did men like Napoleon in the past, that in times of chaos, such as a civil war or a revolution, you can sometimes kick over the hurdles that age and class and rank normally place in front of an ambitious young man. So Pompey shows up at Sulla's camp with twice as many soldiers as Crassus did. He comes with 5,000 instead of Crassus's 2,500. And Pompey's soldiers weren't just new recruits like Crassus's soldiers. They were hardened veterans. That's because they were actually Pompey's father's legion originally. But uh, his father, conveniently for Pompey, died while in command of that army in Italy right around the time that Sulla came. And the young Pompey convinced these soldiers to follow him. Sulla was the one who later gave Pompey that famous unofficial epithet, the Great, which is Magnus in Latin. And this eventually did become a, an official title of Pompey's, but at the time it was informal. So one time later on, someone comes up to Crassus and says, Pompeius Magnus is coming. And Crassus takes the opportunity to make a joke, a little barb there. And so in Latin, the phrase Pompeius Magnus is coming is Venet Pompeius Magnus. And that can also mean a big Pompeius is coming. And Crassus, so, you know, somebody says Pompeius Magnus is coming. And Crassus says, how big? Quantus, how big a Pompeius? It's funny in Latin. Well, during the Civil War, and especially after it, Young Pompey looks like he's got the upper hand in their rivalry. He's shining. He's youthful. He's got this baby face and his cheeks blush whenever he's at the center of attention in public. And 
The Romans are inclined to take that as a sign of his modesty, which they very much like in young men. But Pompey also has that killer instinct, and he can also be brutal. In the Civil War, he got a nickname, Adulascentulus Carnifex, which means kid butcher, teenage butcher. That was after he summarily executed a former consul that he had defeated and captured in the Civil War. And the Romans find this combination of boyish charisma on the one hand and hard, cold, soldierly toughness just irresistible. They love Pompey. And this pattern of Pompey kind of being on the rise goes on over the next few years. After the Civil War, Sulla uses him on favors. He sends Pompey and not Crassus on a mission to mop up Civil War holdouts in Africa. And then after he defeats some Roman rebel forces in Africa, Pompey comes back to Rome and he even manages at this point to extract from Sulla that most coveted prize, a triumphal parade in celebration of his victory. Sulla is hesitant both because Pompey would be the youngest triumpher ever in Roman history, and that would probably bring a lot of indignation upon Sulla, in his opinion, but also because the victory was a victory in a civil war, which is really in bad taste to celebrate a triumph over civil enemies. But Pompey is just so wildly popular with the people that Sulla eventually decides he can't deny him. So Pompey, very popular. But soon after all of this, Sulla dies, not long after winning the Civil War in 78 BC. The Senate, at this point, recognizing Pompey's popularity, they reluctantly again agree to send Pompey to fight in the remainder of the Civil War that's going on in Spain against Sertorius. Sertorius is the last and the greatest of the Roman Civil War dissidents. Sertorius has turned all of Spain basically into a rogue state. And so Pompey gets voted special powers in an army to help finish him off. And you can see the biography that we did on Sertorius for that story, which is uh, episode one of this podcast. And that war goes on for a number of years, for most of the 70s, the decade after Sulla died. And if you weren't paying attention too closely, during the 70s, after the Civil War and after Sulla's death, you might think that while Pompey was off fighting wars, adding glory to glory, that Crassus's career kind of stalled out. But in fact, I think looking at the differences of what these two men did during this period shows you a lot about a fundamental character difference between the two of them. While Pompey is obsessed with glory, Crassus is obsessed with control. And in this period, out of the limelight, Crassus is building the foundations of the personal empire that is going to carry him to the very pinnacle of Roman power. Crassus knows that he wants to play the political game, and he's always looking for opportunities. So here's what he sees when he looks at Rome in this period that we're talking about here, when it's reeling from the Civil War, and it's adjusting to Sulla's sweeping constitutional reforms, and Sulla's dead now. Rome's political scene is now and has always been dominated by a small number of great households. Even within the Senate, even within the senatorial ranks, even among the high magistrates, 
there's a pecking order. There's a steep hierarchy. There's a few grand families, and they include names like Cornelius Scipio, Aurelius Cotta, Caecilius Metellus, Appius Claudius, and now Cornelius Sulla. You could call these great families the Roman power elite. And the family of Licinius Crassus is not in the power elite. It was a middling noble family, not too low, not as low as Pompey's family, but it wasn't all too high either. In fact, it's worth pointing out here that Crassus made the vast majority of his fortune in his own lifetime. His family's estate was not one of the big ones by Roman noble standards. The family was of senatorial rank, yes, but they were not actually one of these super elite families. So apparently their house was unusually small for a senatorial family house. Before all the troubles, his family used to gather around the same table together. They were known for their modest habits. The Roman orator Cicero called Crassus's home a most chaste household, a castissima domus. On the modesty of Crassus's family and Crassus himself, well, his ancient biographer Plutarch recounts one funny story about how Crassus was once suspected of seducing a vestal virgin. These are very important priestesses of the goddess Hestia. And uh, someone prosecuted that vestal virgin for unchastity. That would mean the death penalty for her. They get buried alive. And it would mean exile for whoever was the defiler, if he was convicted. But in fact, it turned out that Crassus was just trying to charm her into giving him a good price on a pleasant villa that this vestal virgin owned in the suburbs. And uh, Plutarch says that thus, in a way, it was his avarice that absolved him from the charge of corrupting the vestal virgin, and he was acquitted by the judges. So I guess that was his defense in the, in the case. Now, once Crassus recovered his modest family estate after the Civil War, he was starting with a net worth equivalent of about 300 silver talents, which is about 7.2 million sesterces. And the purchasing power equivalents here are way off, but just for a rough, rough idea of how much money that would be, I've seen some studies that say a sestertius is maybe the equivalent of about $1.25 today, maybe a British pound. That seems a little low to me, but maybe it's around that. So if you do the math, maybe Crassus is worth $10 million. But for reference here, just comparison is important. In Cicero's day, a notable politician bought a single mansion for twice the price of Crassus's entire inherited estate. So it's relative. But from that comparatively modest beginning, Crassus eventually built his fortune so that on the eve of his departure for his famous failed Persian campaign in 54 BC, he was worth 7,100 talents from 300. That's about 170 million sesterces or $213 million, maybe. But that could easily be off by a factor of at least four. So I think you could think of the upper range being about a billion-dollar fortune. But when he's starting off his career after the Civil War, his social rank and his estate, they're, they're relatively modest. So these top families, these grand names of the power elite, Crassus knows these people, and he sees that if he uses the patronage of one of these great family bosses, say a Metellus, to boost his early career in politics, to give him a leg up in a key election, he's likely to end up 
indebted to that family politically for his whole life. He's likely to end up a client of a grand family, never to be a patron himself in Roman politics. And the patron will control the limits of his client's career. For example, if Crassus were to try to run for office in a year that one of his patron's sons did, it would be Crassus's duty to back down, or else there could be steep, swift consequences. This kind of thing happened all the time. It happened to Marius. But Crassus also sees that some important aspects of the political game have changed at Rome. For one thing, Sulla doubled the size of the Senate as dictator. It now has 600 men instead of 300. And so now, fathers and sons among the lower ranks of the Roman elite, these new senatorial families, they're suddenly dreaming of grand political futures for themselves that seemed impossible in the past. And Crassus sees here the opportunity to build his own permanent constituency so that he can sit at the top of his own pyramid. So he reaches out to these men in various ways. He uses his growing fortune to support their political careers, these lower, middling elites. And he often lends to them money without interest. When the loan is due, of course, he demands it back relentlessly. But he would reach out to these men and he would entertain at his house. Here's a passage from Plutarch. Crassus was generous with strangers for his house was open to all. When he entertained at table, his invited guests were for the most part plebeians and men of the people. And the simplicity of the repast was combined with a neatness and good cheer, which gave more pleasure than lavish expenditure. So in other words, Crassus was a generous, charming host. He loved to entertain, but he would serve simple food, affordable food, and he would invite undistinguished men. And unlike many of the top aristocrats, you know, Crassus's banquets weren't about showing off to his rich friends how rich he was. He didn't see a lot of long-term value in that. When he entertained, he was building. And here's another interesting passage from Plutarch that shows another aspect of his networking strategy. This has to do with the courts. The Roman courts were very political institutions. People are always getting prosecuted for bribery, extortion, unconstitutional proposals, mismanagement, sometimes justly, probably often very justly and often not justly, but it's all part of the Roman game of status. And litigation in, in the political courts is very much a spectator sport. It's a show where you can see great men dueling it out over the issues of the day. But uh, So here's Plutarch. Here's the passage. As for his literary pursuits... He cultivated chiefly the art of speaking, which was of general service. The art of speaking in the courts he's talking about. And after making himself one of the most powerful speakers at Rome, his care and application enabled him to surpass those who were most gifted by nature. The uh, implication here is he's not that gifted by nature, so but he applies himself. For there was no case, they say, however trifling and even contemptible it might be, which he undertook without preparation. But often when Pompey and Caesar and Cicero were unwilling to plead, he would perform all the duties of an advocate. An advocate meaning a, a lawyer. And so he's taking on these cases and these people that the other ambitious leading men like Caesar and Cicero and Pompey are unwilling to touch. Continuing on with Plutarch here. And on this account, he became more popular than they 
being esteemed a careful man and one who is ready always with his help. He pleased people also by the kindly and unaffected manner with which he clasped their hands and addressed them, for he never met a Roman so obscure and lowly that he did not return his greeting and call him by name. So, end quote. So Crassus was the kind of guy that he would see you on the street and he would, he would say, hey, Alex, and you'd say, ah, oh, Crassus knows my name, that great man. So, so when you're building a network, you know, you can think of it in terms of allying with a few key high-profile people or a whole lot of mid- and low-rank people. And Crassus decides to do the second kind, the kind of quantity over quality approach, you might call it. But he took the time to learn their names. And this practice of his pleading constantly in the law courts as a side benefit, it gives him the opportunity, importantly, to get a lot of reps in practicing his speaking skills, which is really key for anyone aspiring to greatness at Rome, probably today as well. And Cicero says that Crassus had only a moderate rhetorical training and even less natural endowment as a speaker, but he practiced at it and he became one of the city's top lawyers. So Crassus is pleading for his clients. Often these are needy, mid-ranking political men instead of the flashy name brands. And like Cicero, Crassus, by the way, he prefers to play the defense in court rather than the prosecution. And then after he does this for these defendants, at least some of these guys are going to become lifetime clients that owe Crassus favors. They become part of his support base. The Romans take this relationship between client and patron very seriously. If you're a patron then clients show up at your door every morning to greet you and basically to ask if you need any favors done that day. But Crassus is also, at this time, spending a lot of energy building his fortune. One famous strategy that Plutarch describes is Crassus, over time, bought and also trained a team of 500 slaves who were all architects and builders. So he kind of owns his own private construction company. And he would wait until a fire swept through some part of the city, say, low-income, multi-story apartment complexes. There are a lot of these in Rome. These are called insulae. These were often really cramped and close together and fire-prone, and fire would spread from one to the other. And he would wait till this would happen, and he would go to the owners of the insulae that were on fire, or the ones next to the ones that were on fire, that were about to catch on fire, and he would offer to buy them from their owners, at, of course, very low prices, but he knew that he could rebuild them cheaply and make a profit. And, you know, if you're an apartment building owner in the days before fire insurance, well, maybe that wasn't such a bad deal. So that's another way that Crassus positioned himself to take advantage of opportunities. Plutarch gives another insight here on Crassus's wealth and the general philosophy underlying it. Quote, Though he owned so many artisans, like these builders and architects, he built no house for himself other than the one in which he lived. Indeed, he used to say that men who were fond of building, houses for themselves, that is, that they were their own undoers and needed no other foes. This kind of makes you think of Robert Kiyosaki's advice, your house is not an asset, it's a liability. I'm moving on. And Though he owned numberless silver mines and highly valuable tracts of land with laborers upon them, 
Nevertheless, one might regard all this as nothing compared with the value of his slaves. So many and so capable were the slaves he possessed. Readers, amanuenses, that's like a secretary, silversmiths, stewards, table servants, and he himself directed their education and took part in it himself as a teacher. And in a word, he thought that the chief duty of the master was to care for his slaves as the living implements of household management. So, directing their own education, I think that's fascinating. These are the days, of course, when slavery was normal and it was thought of as just a fact of life. But the ancients realized that the way that you treat your slaves says a lot about your character. And Plutarch, who is no particular fan of Crassus, he still seems to admire the man on this point for realizing that, kind of like a wise investor, Crassus knows what his most important asset is, and it's people, it's talent. And so Crassus acts accordingly. He directs their education. He trains them himself. I think Crassus' investment in his human capital is related to a fact that is one of the keys that makes Crassus great, maybe destined for greatness. It's his CEO energy. He builds and then he runs a very complex organization. And some parts of that organization he doesn't need to literally own or employ. You know, some parts are his clients, some parts are his friends, some parts he does own. But he sees it all working together as this great system, the system of Crassus Inc., the Marcus Licinius Crassus political machine. But still, while Crassus is building, Pompey is just going on to glory upon glory, fighting Sertorius in Spain, scoring victories. The Senate is sending him more troops, and Crassus is starting to get a little antsy, as though despite all of his clever political network building, he's losing the status battle, because he is. And he's starting to get desperate to try to find a way to match or at least catch up with Pompey. And at last, the chance arises. But it comes from a very unexpected place, a terrifying circumstance for any wealthy Roman. In 73 BC, the Romans hear about an incident at one of the gladiatorial schools in southern Italy, in Capua. This is one of the schools that train gladiators to fight to the death in the Roman arena, in the big shows, but they keep the gladiators kind of off-site, mostly in southern Italy. And so, the incident began in the kitchen. Gladiators are, of course, slaves, and the best were thought to be the ones who had been the most heinous criminals in life. They were the more violent ones that way. Well, 70 or so of these men break out of their cells where they're being held at their training school and they bust into the kitchen and they grab pots and pans and butcher's cleavers and grilling skewers and meat hooks and they literally hack their way out of the school. They overwhelm the guards and they escape to freedom. Now, normally, if you're a Roman hearing this news, you're expecting this to be just a run-of-the-mill slave violence incident. They're going to get captured pretty quickly and tortured and crucified, and that'll be that. Or maybe they'll vanish and become bandits, which is inconvenient, but it's not a big deal. And so the Romans don't take this very seriously at first. But it turned out that these men were led by someone very serious indeed. 
His name was Spartacus. Spartacus was a man of immense bodily strength. He had actually been a soldier in the Roman army. Spartacus was a Thracian. They had so-called barbarians in the army often in those days. They were in the auxiliary cavalry units typically. So Spartacus fought in the army. His name in Thracian was Sparadakos, which is a noble name, even a royal name among the Thracians. It means famous for the spear. And a few ancient sources agree that he was actually wrongly made a slave and a gladiator through no fault of his own, that we don't know the backstory. And that is the man leading these gladiators out of their school. Well, the city of Capua, the nearby city, sends a local garrison of soldiers to capture them. And the gladiators repel them. Local slaves and bandits notice oh, something's happening here. And they show up to join. And then the Romans start to get slightly more serious and they send one of the praetors in. Praetors are the second highest ranking elected office at Rome. They're just below the consuls. Praetors are second rank generals and judges. Well, anyway, this praetor brings with him 3,000 soldiers, not great soldiers, emergency draftees, but fighting men all the same. And the gladiators repel them. They take their camp, their weapons, their armor, their shields. And so more men start to join the rebels. Herdsmen now, shepherds, poor men from around the region. This is starting to look like a real slave revolt. Now, the Romans have seen a slave revolt before in Italy and in Sicily, they don't realize it yet, but they haven't seen one like this. The Romans send another praetor, Varinus, with some more soldiers. And this guy is swiftly defeated too. And Spartacus surprises them and he catches one of the Roman lieutenants while he was in the bath. And that guy ends up dying and the gladiators rout the army. This is starting to get really serious. And it makes sense if you consider the character of the man commanding them. Here's a little bit more about him. This is what Plutarch says about Spartacus. He was possessed not only of great courage and strength, but also in sagacity and culture, he was superior to his fortune and, I love this, Greeker than his race. It is said that when he was first brought to Rome to be sold, a serpent was seen coiled about his face as he slept. And his wife, who was of the same tribe as Spartacus, a prophetess and subject of visitations of the frenzy of the god Dionysus, she declared the snake to be the sign of a great and formidable power which would attend him to a fortunate result. This woman shared in his escape and was then living with him. So Spartacus's consort, if you will, his queen, is a priestess of Dionysus, Snakes and snake dreams, they're very Dionysian. They kind of remind you of Olympias, who's Alexander the Great's mother. The god Dionysus, this is important, Bacchus in Latin. Well, he goes by another name in Latin, Liber, the god of liberty, of freedom, the freedom of wine and madness, but also the freedom of the freed slaves. Well, Spartacus is starting to look like a savior figure, and he understands his role here very clearly. He's charismatic, and he's also just. He divides the spoils of war equally. He restrains his men from excess plundering. 
he's sort of a lordly figure and he's in it to win. And, and it really shows to the people of the countryside, discontents start to flock to Spartacus. And at the height of the war, as many as 70,000 men were fighting with him. What would it mean to win for Spartacus? He knows that there's no sense in him trying to overthrow Rome itself. They can't even get a single city or a village to actually revolt. No free city is going to rally behind a slave. Every inch of ground that they occupy, they have to fight for. Nothing is given. And so Spartacus's plan, and this is his best option, is to march up through northern Italy and to cross the Alps and to escape, basically. Most of the core of his fighters are Gauls, Germans, and Thracians. These are people from lands beyond the borders of Rome. And they could find their way back to their homes, maybe, or they could start new lives once they escape the power of the Romans. The Romans, however, can't just let them go. It would make them look weak. They have many enemies right now that they don't want to inspire to boldness. They've got Pompey off in the west fighting Sertorius. Lucullus is in the east fighting Mithridates. And they're also dealing with a pirate crisis in the Mediterranean, so even though the Romans' resources are really squeezed, they have to crush this rebellion, and the Senate is finally willing to up their investment in the war. And so they send in both of the year's consuls, both of the highest officers in the state, with as many men as they can muster, 30,000, which is a lot. And the consuls that they send in happen to be buddies of Pompey, and for that reason... Crassus must have been not entirely upset at what happened next. So at first, the consul Gellius scores a victory, finally a Roman victory against these slaves. He scores it against some Germans who separated themselves from the main army. So it's by no means decisive. So after this victory, though, Spartacus himself comes and he defeats the other consul, a guy named Lentulus. But then... Consul number one, Gellius, comes to support consul number two after he's been defeated, and Gellius gets defeated as well by Spartacus. Spartacus has just defeated both Roman consuls in battle. And this took place in central Italy on the way north. And then the Roman governor of northern Italy comes down with an army to help. And Spartacus smashes that army too. The governor barely escapes with his life. I want to pause here. For a sec, just to honor the fact that Spartacus is brilliant. He's one of the most jaw-dropping and inspiring stories, I think, from this whole era. And he's been a hero for people, especially coming from the political left, at least since the 18th century. Voltaire called the war with Spartacus the only just war in history, obviously from Spartacus's perspective. Toussaint Louverture, who's the slave revolt revolutionary of early 19th century Haiti, he used to actively invite this comparison with himself between himself and Spartacus. And uh, in his day, they called him the Black Spartacus. Fidel Castro, writing a letter from his prison cell in 1954, kind of reflecting upon his inspirations, he wrote, At the time when Napoleon was imitating Caesar and France resembled Rome, the soul of Spartacus was born in Toussaint Louverture. There are plenty of others that you could list. But it wasn't only modern leftists and revolutionaries who were inspired by Spartacus. Even the rather conservative Plutarch really admires the man. So does one of Plutarch's main Roman sources, Sallust. 
Sallust we've covered before. He was a man obsessed with exposing Roman corruption and incompetence, and this made him get really interested in historical figures that exposed his own people's vices. So many admirers of Spartacus, even in antiquity. Crassus, though, whatever his own feelings on Spartacus, he can recognize a worthy opponent when he sees one. Crassus has been watching all of these developments with great interest. By now, the Romans are really panicked and they're desperate. And the nobles among the Senate are finally willing to do just about anything. They're even willing to allow someone they don't totally trust, who they know that they can't control because he has built his own constituency without reference to the great noble houses. They're willing to take a chance on letting that kind of guy solve the problem. And Crassus has been waiting to make his move until the stakes were high enough. So at last, he puts himself forward, and the Senate votes him the command. Even though he's just a private citizen now, but they vote him these extraordinary powers that give him near dictatorial control over the Italian countryside. Crassus raises six legions. The legion is about 5,000 men, so he raises 30,000 men. And on top of that... Crassus probably finances them himself. Armor, weapons, food, horses. He was later famous for saying, no man is truly rich unless he can fund his own army. And this seems to be the first time that he or anyone actually did it on this scale. Six legions. Meanwhile, the Romans have sent strong armies to guard the passes in the Alps. So Spartacus decided to abandon his escape route through the Alps. He's now leading his slave army south into the mountains of southern Italy. It's a wilder, more rugged region that they call Lucania. Spartacus is hoping to either somehow escape by the sea or to use the rougher terrain here to his advantage to get the Romans fighting in ways that they're not trained for. Guerrilla tactics, attrition war... And this makes things harder for Crassus, but we have to remember here Crassus's father's career as governor of western Spain, which had him warring against the wild tribes of Lusitania and similar terrain. Well, Crassus was on his father's staff there in Spain, so he, he knows how to do this. And his strategy against Spartacus is basically locate the enemy, isolate them, cut off their supplies, avoid battle, unless it's absolutely favorable on his own terms. And then when he strikes, to strike decisively. But before he can score any successes, one of Crassus's lieutenants makes a big mistake. Mummius was the guy's name. Well, Mummius had strict orders not to offer battle on any terms to the enemy. But he disobeys. He thinks he sees an opportunity and he attacks some part of Spartacus's army. Mummius also happened to be leading some of the lower quality soldiers from those consular armies that got defeated earlier. Maybe he was hoping to give them a chance to redeem themselves. Well, in the battle, they didn't. Spartacus defeats Mummius in a rout. And about 500 of Mummius's soldiers just drop their weapons and flee the scene. And maybe this was understandable... For an average Roman, gladiators in the arena inspired a mixture of admiration and horror. These were men who faced death on a routine basis. 
Before the eyes of tens of thousands of people, they were large, strong men, and they were often very charismatic. Cicero once wrote about gladiators, about his admiration for their fearless approach to death. He said, When have you ever seen one twist his neck away after he has been ordered to extend it for the death blow? You know, the gladiator will stand and fight to the death. And for a Roman, to watch a gladiator in the arena is to be reminded of the raw, violent prowess that your ancestors had won the empire with. But in another way, it was also to be reminded of the kind of life that you didn't have to lead since you were a free man. Thank God. I think if the Romans had therapists, that a common nightmare that they would hear from your average Roman would be encountering a gladiator in the arena. So maybe this fear of the soldiers was understandable, but this was war. Crassus reprimands Mummius, but then he decides to do something really drastic. Crassus has come to the conclusion that one of the things really holding the Romans back in this war is indiscipline. And actually, the famous politician Cato the Younger was a young soldier in one of these armies at the time, and we have him on record complaining that he saw a lot of indiscipline in the army in the Spartacus War, in the, in the early days of the Spartacus War, so maybe Crassus was justified in doing what he did. But he revives an ancient form of punishment that the Romans haven't used in centuries. He divides the 500 men who dropped and fled into 50 groups of 10, then each 10 men draw lots, and the unlucky man of each bunch of 10 is executed by being beaten with rods by the other nine of his fellow legionaries. It's called decimation. I think that last part is probably the most horrific, that the other guilty guys have to do it, all of them knowing that it could have been them. And this was within Crassus's power to do legally. A Roman consul or anyone endowed with consular authority like he is in this context, they have life and death authority over Roman citizens out in the field. And Crassus's choice was harsh, but he wanted the men to fear him more than they feared the enemy. And by all accounts, it worked. Because that was in fact the last time that Spartacus's gladiator army defeated the Romans in a pitched battle. Crassus goes on the offensive and he scores a quick victory on Spartacus, but not a decisive one. Spartacus retreats down further through Lucania into the toe of Italy, into Brutium, that's modern Calabria, and he gets to the Straits of Messina, which is the narrow water that separates Italy from the island of Sicily, and he makes a deal with some Cilician pirates to take his army across over to Sicily. Unfortunately for Spartacus, though, they trick him and they deceive him and they take his money and never show up. And suspicions were high that Crassus may have personally paid the pirates off, but no evidence ever emerged. So Spartacus turns around to face Crassus. Then they begin a long game of cat and mouse and the initiative shifts to Crassus, Spartacus now the one trying to avoid battle. Crassus decides to lay a trap for Spartacus. 
Spartacus is at the very tip of the toe of southern Italy, and Crassus places a cordon across about 30 miles worth of territory with a combination of ditches and walls over all the passable land. He's hoping to trap them like tuna in this huge net. And this ends up being a landmass of some thousand square miles that he's walled Spartacus off in, a territory about the size of Rhode Island. But it's bad, poor land, and it's the middle of winter, and Spartacus is running out of food. Spartacus makes a charge on the fortifications at one of the key passes, but then he's repelled. And so he falls back and he regroups, but before making another move, he crucifies one of his Roman prisoners in the space between the fortifications and his own army. He wants to show his slave gladiators what's going to happen to them if they can't manage to fight their way out and win their freedom. And Spartacus waits for a winter snowstorm when the Romans are shorter staffed and have their guard down. And then one night he heaps into a section of the ditch earth and timber and snow and some say the bodies of the dead and cow carcasses. And he charges a portion of his forces across and he gets maybe a third of the army across. But that's enough. Crassus is foiled. The net is ripped. And he abandons the position and resumes his chase of Spartacus. Soon, though, Crassus isolates another large division of the slave army that split off from Spartacus, and he defeats them in an incredibly bloody battle. It's so bloody because these slaves are mostly from the Germans and Gauls, and these are men known for their warrior culture. They're known to prefer suicide to fleeing in battle. And they also fight like men who have everything to gain by victory and nothing left to look forward to if they survive defeat. Men who would rather be dead than go back into slavery. According to Crassus's war report, all but two of the 12,000 soldiers of the gladiator army that he faced died standing in their ranks. Well, Crassus gets word next, though, that Pompey has finished his civil war in Spain. And Crassus is expecting that now Pompey's supporters in Rome are going to try to get Pompey dispatched to help Crassus out with the Spartacus War. But just as he was hoping, before Pompey can get there, Crassus finally manages to lure Spartacus into a decisive battle. And here's Plutarch on what happened. Crassus, therefore, pressed on to finish the struggle himself, and having encamped near the enemy, he began to dig a trench. Into this, the slaves leaped and began to fight with those who were working there. So I guess he was trying to trench off Spartacus's army somehow, and the slaves leap in to try to stop him. And since fresh men from both sides kept coming to help their comrades, Spartacus saw that necessity was upon him. Then he drew up his whole army in order of battle. So Spartacus gets drawn into a fight, kind of against his plan. Continuing on with Plutarch here. In the first place, when Spartacus's horse was brought to him, he drew his sword and saying that if he won the day, he would have many fine horses of the enemies. But if he lost it, he did not want any. He slew his horse. Then pushing his way towards Crassus himself, through many flying weapons and wounded men, he did not indeed reach him, but slew two centurions who fell upon him together. Finally, after his companions had taken to flight, 
Spartacus stood alone, surrounded by a multitude of foes, and was still defending himself when he was cut down. And it is said that they never found his body. Well, after two years of ravaging and chaos in Italy, when Spartacus finally dies in this decisive battle, the war is over. There are 6,000 surviving captives from Spartacus's slave army. Crassus orders them to be given the standard punishment for slaves who turn on their masters. He has all 6,000 of them crucified all along the road between Capua and Rome. It's 180 kilometers. It ends up being about one every 30 meters. Now, Roman triumphs, this great victory procession, the greatest thing you could want, maybe. These are only given to commanders who defeat foreign enemies. And so Pompey scores a few points against Crassus because his triumph over Sertorius technically counts because Sertorius managed to raise up an army of native Spaniards. This is an amazing story, and you should, again, check out the Cost of Glory series that we did on Sertorius. And on top of that, after Crassus's decisive battle against Spartacus, Pompey was hanging around in the territory, and he spotted a remnant of Spartacus's shattered army, and he swooped in like a vulture and defeated them in some minor skirmish. And then he started claiming, Crassus conquered the slaves, but Pompey finished the war. So he's trying to take credit for that victory. And that was kind of silly. It's the sort of thing that only would get repeated by Pompey's flatterers. But it had to be annoying to Crassus when you combine it with the fact that in the Senate's eyes, Crassus's victory over Spartacus did not count for a triumph because it wasn't against foreign enemies. And still, though, these things weren't actually a real obstacle for Crassus's master plan. Given the panic that had been gripping Rome for the past two years, the constant anxiety that the city would be engulfed in a tidal wave of bloodthirsty gladiators bent on revenge, and they really did worry at times that the slave army would march on Rome, and it didn't, Crassus was hugely popular after defeating them in 71 BC. Triumph or not, he was the man who saved the city. And so now he has a clear shot at getting elected to the consulship, The Crassus had also learned, too, that while rivalry on the one hand was the lifeblood, or you could say the engine of the Republic's greatness, its drive to excellence, the Roman system also had ways of rewarding people who could bridge over political differences and join forces for the greater good of Rome. So instead of quarreling with Pompey or stewing over in resentment at being upstaged, Crassus reached out to Pompey, and he proposed that they campaign together for the consulship to support each other's ticket and guarantee that it would be the two of them as the consuls for the next year. Crassus was a deal-maker. I mean, what if Marius and Sulla had been able to strike a deal? Couldn't Rome have been saved from civil war? Well, to put the stamp on his popularity for the election... Crassus appeals to the Senate, and they allow him to have a minor victory celebration. It's called an ovation, and the general in an ovation doesn't get to ride in a chariot. He has to march on foot, but it's an honor nonetheless. 
And then the Senate allows him to throw that gigantic party for Hercules, the one that we opened with. Food for the entire city. It's said that there were 10,000 tables laid and three months of living expenses for every citizen, a tenth of his net worth. And so after this necessary politicking, by supporting each other's candidacies, Crassus and Pompey easily coast into office as the two consuls for the year 70 BC. But despite the promising feel-good mood of this reconciliation of the two men who were by now Rome's most powerful rivals, the year 70, Crassus and Pompey's turn of office was going to be a revolutionary year for the Roman constitution. Because despite the fact that the city was reeling from the horror of the Civil War and Sulla's proscriptions, Sulla's reforms had kept Rome relatively stable over the past 10 years. They allowed her to focus on her external enemies. But Pompey and Crassus actually had big plans to undo some key elements of the dictator's constitution. And on top of that, this idea of allying with your rivals instead of trying to overwhelm them was a lesson that young Julius Caesar was observing very carefully. But let's save the details on all of that for the next episode because we've already told an amazing story. The story of how Marcus Licinius Crassus went from barely escaping a civil coup with his head attached to his body, from being an exile for years in a foreign land, to becoming one of the two most powerful men in Rome. Perhaps even at this point, the richest man in Rome. He certainly would be soon. Even though we haven't even begun to appreciate the strategies Crassus used to dominate Roman politics for the next decade and a half, and the many ways that he shaped history, Still, there's a lot to learn from anyone's rise. So I just want to share a couple of takeaways that I learned from this story before we close. First of all, Crassus never let a good crisis go to waste. From the civil wars, the war with Spartacus, to the frequent minor crises of fires in apartment blocks, Crassus was always ready to stop and think hard and to take advantage of chaos. So the next time that you're in a crisis, think about Crassus and ask, what opportunity is in this? Or how can I position myself to be the person people turn to in a bad situation? Second, and this is maybe a way of putting yourself in that position of being the person people turn to, is there any talent pool or constituency that the current system that you're a part of is neglecting? Remember how Crassus recruited the mid and low rank senators into his constituency the less-than-name brands, or how he took the time to invest in his slave talent, not just with his money, but with his time and his foresight, his care for their skills. Well, there are many other lessons that we can learn from the richest man in Rome, but let's get to them when we tell the rest of his story. Meanwhile, if you enjoyed this, leave us a review. It really helps people find the podcast. Or sign up for our newsletter at ancientlifecoach.com. Stay strong. Stay ancient. This is Alex Petkus. See you next episode.